production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Maltrip, Chief Executive of the City Club and a proud member. Today is April 17th. It's the fifth week of virtual forums for the City Club. And once again, we're presenting our forum today from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. That's our public media partner. Our virtual forums have largely been anchored in some fashion in this coronavirus pandemic. Earlier this week, we talked with David Folkenflik of NPR about what's happening in journalism here and across the country. Last week, Loretta Mester of the Federal Reserve Bank spoke with us about the economics of this moment and the extraordinary tools the central bank is using. Today, we ask what impact the pandemic is having on democracies, both our democracy here and democracies around the world. Attempting to control the spread of the coronavirus has led to a rapid expansion of executive power. At the end of March, more than 2.6 billion people, 20% of the global population, were under some form of lockdown or quarantine. That's more people than were alive to witness World War II. And while lockdowns are considered necessary to save lives, some leaders appear to have used the pandemic as an opportunity to expand their powers and make sweeping changes, such as censoring media, limiting freedom of expression, postponing or canceling elections, and increasing surveillance. This is all happening at a time when the liberal democracy was already under threat. So we'll talk about the health of the liberal democracy, the tension between public health and individual freedom and civil liberties, the, cons the consolidation of power, and whether democracy itself might become a casualty of the coronavirus. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. You can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And if you're on Twitter, you can tweet them at the City Club and we'll work them in. Before we introduce our speaker, I'd like to just take a moment to thank our generous members, sponsors, donors who support these virtual forums. For a full list, you can visit cityclub.org slash thank you. And if you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate. Now our speaker today, it's Dr. Yasha Monk. He is a political scientist known for his work on the rise of populism and the crisis facing liberal democracies. He's spoken at the City Club before on his book, The People Versus Democracy, and you may have seen his work in The Atlantic as well. He's a senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute and associate professor at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. He's a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund and the host of a podcast called The Good Fight. Yasha Monk, we're so glad to have you back. Welcome back to the City Club. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be back. And I have to say, I found the, the ring of your bell very reassuring because it reminded me of uh, earlier and better times. Yes, indeed. It, it is like you have to keep some things kind of current and consistent, and it helps you feel as though this will be uh, over at some point. But for the moment, Yasha, um, what's the health of the liberal democracy today? Well, um, look, I think the most important aspect of this crisis is obviously... Um, whether we're going to manage to save the lives of millions of people in the United States and around the world, um, whether we're going to uh, be able to avoid unnecessary 
damage to the economy, uh, whether we're going to be able to build a better world uh, after we're through this crisis. Um, now, thankfully, I think for those of us who care very much about the preservation of democracy, both at home and abroad, um, those two questions are linked. I think if democracies around the world manage to deal with this crisis as best we can, if we manage to avert uh, the excess death of millions of people, um, and therefore manage to open our economies once it's safe to do so again and people can actually go back to producing goods and services with full confidence that they're not about to die or about to uh, infect the, the co-workers and the friends and the families, um, then I think that's going to uh, also strengthen the reputational prestige of democracy around the world, um, perhaps allow us to overcome some of the deep divisions uh, that we felt in all of our countries um, uh, over the last months and years. Um, now, uh, at the same time, there are, of course, some uh, very ruthless political leaders who are already uh, abusing this emergency, this crisis, in order to take full dictatorial powers. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the case of Hungary, which is a particularly important country, because it's a country that had apparently become a consolidated democracy over the last uh, 20 or so years, a country which political scientists used to point to as one of the great success stories of emerging from communist dictatorship, becoming a flourishing liberal democracy. Um, but under Viktor Orban for the last 10 years, uh, democracy has uh, gradually been undermined in that country. And just in the last weeks, Viktor Orban has uh, used the coronavirus epidemic as an excuse to uh, take the power to rule by decree indefinitely, to have the parliament essentially abolish itself so that there's no democratic oversight over what he does and to implement all several laws which aren't actually necessary in order to battle this uh, pandemic. For example, in Hungary, it can now be punishable by time in prison to spread, quote-unquote, false rumors on uh, Twitter or Facebook, on various platforms and social media. And so I think what we're seeing at this point is that uh, uh, there is actually an opportunity for democracies to prove their worth in this moment. Um, for people to recognize uh, that some of the would-be authoritarians uh, who have been exploiting this crisis are really endangering uh, the lives of their uh, fellow citizens, for people to return to political leaders who have a real commitment to liberal democracy. Um, but at the same time, there's a danger that in many countries, governments will abuse this uh, political moment in order to uh, take on full powers and destroy democracy. Yashamon, could you talk a little bit more about exactly how this happened in Hungary with Viktor Orban and if there was any pushback at all or if he had already consolidated so much power that there was no one left to push back? Yeah, I think the, the question you pushed right at the very end is the right one. Um, uh, you know, Hungary was uh, only uh, a democracy for show over the last couple of years. Uh, the government had already placed all of its loyalists into uh, government institutions, institutions that are supposed to be independent, the electoral commission, the courts. Um, and so they did still have elections, they did still have a parliament, um, but effectively uh, those were fig leaves to um, conceal the extent to which Hungary had become a dictatorship. So what uh, Viktor Orban has now done is to use this crisis in order to let uh, pretenses fall um, and show nakedly what was clear to careful observers of the country uh, already. Um, now, uh, I think the big question is what's going to happen 
in countries in which uh, populists are ruling who don't yet have the same extent of control uh, over the political system. So I'm thinking of somebody like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. I'm thinking of somebody like AMLO in Mexico. Um, I'm thinking of somebody like Narendra Modi in India. Um, and, and, and there, I think, broadly speaking, there are two possibilities. The first is that uh, this provides an excuse and an opportunity for them to expand their powers, uh, that it seemingly uh, validates uh, the narrative that the world is very dangerous and we have to be on the guard against outsiders and perhaps close down our borders. Um, and so it might actually empower them. It might give them uh, that extra excuse, that extra bit of power they need in order to uh, destroy democracy for good. Um, I think there's also a second possibility, though, um, and that's that all of the people who have been warning about uh, the rise of these authoritarian populist governments for the last uh, few years always had a tough time convincing the public. Um, I remember when I go around giving talks about my book, The People Versus Democracy, I always get some skeptical questions. And I got a few skeptical questions when I was uh, in Cleveland for it as well. Um, because my argument is that we will all pay very dearly for uh, politicians who undermine independent institutions, who mistrust expertise, um, who politicize everything, who are incapable of unifying the nation, who play fast and loose with the truth so that people don't know whether to trust them in an emergency. Um, and for a long time, all of those warnings felt a little bit abstract. They felt a little bit far-fetched. And people quite rightly said, you know, life in the United States, life in Brazil, life in India, life in Turkey hasn't gotten that much worse in the last few years. Actually, perhaps in, in my own case, it's gotten a little bit better. Um, and so all these warnings uh, that uh, populists, whether the name is Bolsonaro or Erdogan, or, or I would argue Donald Trump here in the United States, are somehow uh, dangerous for us are overblown. You know, they're sort of airhead academics coming down from the ivory tower or they're journalists who just want a sensationalized story or they're the political opposition that has an interest in portraying the government as somehow bad or evil. Um, you know, when I look at my life, everything's fine. Uh, well, I think that this crisis and the incompetence uh, that many leaders have shown in tackling this crisis, and that's true of Trump here, it's true of AMLO in Mexico, it's true of Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, is making people wake up to the real dangers of having a government uh, that does not trust experts, that does not trust independent institutions, that is not competent, that is not unifying, that cannot be trusted to tell the truth, that makes promises about how much testing we're going to have next week, that still aren't true a month or two months later. Um, I think people are starting to recognize that. And that's a real danger uh, to some of those populist governments who are trying to undermine liberal democracy. And that's why we have a little bit of hope that at least in some countries, uh, this crisis may actually help us to fortify and renew our liberal democracies. A terrible cost, a terrible cost. Um, uh, but, but that is, I think, a possibility. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Yasha Monk. Uh, of, uh, he's a fellow with the German Marshall Fund. He has a podcast called The Good Fight. He's an author and a writer and, and editor-at-large with The Atlantic. And uh, we're talking about the state of democracy in the face of the pandemic. You can join us with a question to 330 541-5794-330-541-5794. You're with the City Club of Cleveland, the Friday Forum. Um, Yashi, you lay out this sort of uh, two potential paths for would-be authoritarian and populist governments, one that they expand their powers and, and eventually succeed in destroying democracy, the other that the, the populace, the voting 
populace actually wakes up and says, wait, you're destroying something that we actually kind of like. On the other hand, those are those are those are the paths for authoritarian leaning governments. What about the paths for solid democracies right now where you have strong democratic leaders who uh, such as in New Zealand or Germany or elsewhere where um, do we find that democracy is in fact strengthening in ways that you uh, that that are heartening or are you finding that in fact they're facing different threats? Uh, well, I would say it's a mixed uh, bag. It's a mixed record. Um, when you look, especially at the early phases of this pandemic, uh, there really wasn't a, a single country, a single government, a single international organization that managed to live up to the scale and the dimension uh, of a crisis. Um, now, in one sense, it's perhaps unsurprising. We haven't faced a pandemic of this uh, dimension and severity in over 100 years. Um, on the other hand, it is a little disappointing. You would think that organizations from the World Health Organization to the CDC, um, to countries like the United States, to France, to Germany, um, would be capable of protecting the public from a kind of danger that we knew about for a very long time. We knew there would eventually be a pandemic with an infectious disease. Uh, we didn't know that it would be this particular virus. We didn't know that it would be at this particular moment. Um, uh, but everybody, uh, every public health expert knew that this was one of the great dangers to humanity. Um, so I think that we should all be quite sobered by our inability uh, to respond, uh, and that perhaps especially true here in the United States. I'm, I'm, I've been living in this country for about 12, 13 years. I'm a proud citizen of this country now, um, but I have been shocked by our uh, failures um, at every institutional level. Um, uh, you know, a year or two ago, when researchers at Johns Hopkins University uh, ranked different countries in the world on the ability to respond uh, to a global pandemic, the United States came out first because of how much state capacity it has, because of how rich it is, because of how many scientists it has, because of how developed a public health system it has. Um, and yet we have stumbled again and again, and we're still not capable, for example, of testing all of the people who are desperately in need of uh, tests of the coronavirus. Um, so I think we should all be disheartened uh, by the performance of governments across the board. Now, I do think that some of the governments that have... Uh, performed comparatively better, especially after the initial failures, after the first weeks of being too slow and recognizing the danger, um, are democratic governments with relatively moderate leaders, um, the ones you mentioned included, um, whether it is in Germany, whether it is in France, whether it is in New Zealand, um, in countries around the world that are capable of uh, uh, generating trust in the population, of speaking in a unifying way. National plan for how to emerge from the current lockdown that's actually based on the steps we have to have in place in order to uh, test people, in order to quarantine them and they're sick, in order to adequately, if they uh, get a serious case of COVID-19. Um, to be uh, being rewarded. So virtually every country has seen what political scientists call a rallying around the flag effect of people saying, this is a crisis, we're going to stand by the government. Um, but some of them uh, have had uh, a negligible uh, one, uh, including the United States. Uh, Donald Trump is now back to the approval ratings, at which he was at a couple of months ago. Um, in other countries, uh, including Germany, including New Zealand, including uh, many other of those democracies, um, uh, approval and trust in the government is much higher now than it was a couple of uh, months ago. 
um, approval for Angela Merkel in Germany is now near record highs um, after a long lull of the last years. Now, the ability of governments to actually profit from that access trust for a long time, uh, the ability of a political system to say, you see, uh, we can actually deliver for people, uh, depends on its uh, success in sustaining um, a, a successful battle against this pandemic um, and, and, and public trust as a result. Um, and I think it's far too early to tell whether or not those governments are going to be able to sustain that. My, my bet, if anything, would be that opposition parties, including some radical parties in countries where moderates are in charge, um, are going to profit from this crisis in the long run. Because even if governments manage the crisis relatively well, there's going to be a lot of death, a lot of suffering, uh, a lot of economic pain, um, and voters will likely blame the governments for that, even if the governments do a relatively good job. This is a moment, Yasha Monk, where uh, the institutions and the functions and the processes of democracies are exceptionally important. In the last week, we saw South Korea go to the ballot box with something on the order of 60 to 70 percent participation of voters, which um, which sounds amazing to uh, to anyone in America where we're lucky to get 35 to 40 percent. Um, uh, and at the same time, that follows the the very troubled voting in Wisconsin, uh, in the primary there. Um, what do democracies need to do right now to keep the wheels turning? Oh, it seems as though we've lost, wait. Is Briefly summarize the question, that would be great. Um, if you do have a question for Dr. Yasha Monk, please text it to 330-541-5794. We're getting him back right now, 330-541-5794. Yasha, I don't know if you caught that last question that I asked, but um, about voting and the basic functions of democracy. South Korea had an extraordinarily successful balloting, uh, it appears, and that followed um, extraordinarily unsuccessful balloting in Wisconsin. Or perhaps actually it was in the end it was okay, although it really put a lot of people's lives at risk. Um, what do democracies need to do right now and how prepared are democracies for the innovation that's required? Yeah, thank you. And sorry for everybody, I, I lost the connection for a little moment. Um, I suppose we're now all uh, gods of Wi-Fi uh, in this particular moment if we want to have conversations. And it's kind of uh, remarkable how easily uh, it normally works. Um, uh, you know, I think this is a great uh, problem. Um, and it's a great problem for two reasons. A, uh, governments uh, tend to work relatively well when you just have to do uh, everything the same as you have done it for a long time. So even when you have quite dysfunctional or quite malicious governments, the state is usually able to carry out tasks that it has done in the same fashion for the last 20 or 30 years. There's enough accumulated expertise, enough partisan bureaucrats um, that they are capable of simply following the existing rule book. Um, that's one of the reasons why most populations did not pay such a heavy price for the rise of these um, uh, Mercurian leaders uh, in the last years. Um, but now we're in a moment of real crisis in which you actually need government leadership, in which you need competent uh, and trustworthy leadership in order to put new measures in place. That's true when it comes to uh, combating the a pandemic, when it comes to expanding our testing capacity and other crucial things. It is also true uh, of elections. Um, and so uh, uh, governments need to be prepared 
for the possibility that over the next year or two, and of course, the very important uh, elections here in the United States fall into that time window, um, might have to be carried out uh, remotely, uh, that it would be irresponsible to have people vote in person uh, when that might help to spread the disease and, in fact, uh, scores of other people. Um, so I think uh, all governments now need to put in place the measures we need in order to have absentee and postal balloting, perhaps some forms of online voting for those are harder to secure um, in the next months. And they need to do that in a way that involves um, uh, political parties of all ideological stripes, uh, both Democrats and Republicans here in the United States, um, outside observers from civil society, uh, so that people can trust these new systems um, not to be uh, partisan. Um, unfortunately, there are many governments that are not willing to do that, uh, that either uh, are strictly incapable uh, or more likely are trying to exploit this situation uh, in order to serve their own uh, partisan political interests. Um, personally, I feel that that's what happened in Wisconsin uh, last week, uh, that uh, various political forces thought that they would gain from uh, making it harder for people to vote uh, via postal ballot. Um, uh, the Republican legislature thought that this would be the best way of ensuring that in the judicial elections in that country, in that state, to uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, Republicans would prevail. Um, I, I take this to be very, very worrying at a deep level. It's slightly heartening at a more superficial level. The deep worry is that this um, accelerates the politicization of our electoral system and the elections here in the United States. Um, and people who admitted to democracy, we should all care about that. Now, um, one uh, piece of schadenfreude I have about the outcome is that the tries to politicize the election, tries to um, make it harder for the purpose of position, which would be the Democrats in the case, uh, to come out and vote, actually, by a very large in and candidate favored by Democrats won the election in Wisconsin. And I think one of the reasons was that uh, many Wisconsinites normally uh, vote for the uh, Republican candidate uh, or Republican line candidate um, uh, were very active at the in which were forced to go out and vote in person at the end of the moment, uh, because Republican controlled legislature was interested in deep judicial polls than in safeguarding lives of only voters in Wisconsin. And so I think uh, the one optimistic I take from that is that uh, they will not stop it. And they will get very angry at governments who try to deprive them of a right to vote or to make the right to vote conditional on taking an existential risk. Um, I hope to God that uh, Republicans uh, in this country heed the lesson from that and now work together with Democrats to make sure we can have fair, free, and safe elections in November, even if we still have to implement measures at social distancing at that time. Yasha Monk is our guest. You can text questions for him to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You're with the City Club Friday Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop. Yasha, turning to the... Uh, larger institutions of global cooperation, the UN, the World Health Organization, the NATO, the European Union. Um, 
with the the United States threatening to pull funding from the WHO, with the EU issuing a belated apology to the nation of Italy this week, it seems as if um, these institutions of global cooperation are really suffering. Yeah, well, um, you know, they are, and they've made many mistakes. Um, you know, in, in the case of the WHO, I think it is uh, deeply irresponsible for the United States to cut funding uh, from the World Health Organization in the midst of a global pandemic, because we need the WHO in order to coordinate the responses of different nations around the world. And if we eventually want to reopen not just the U.S. economy, but the world economy, on which the help of the U.S. economy also depends, um, we need an organization that is capable of um, tracking resurgence of a disease, that is capable of coordinating the actions of different uh, countries around the world that is able to channel uh, information and communication from one country to the next. And without that funding, the WHO is going to struggle to do that. Now, what is in fact true is that the WHO uh, has failed in this crisis, um, that it was um, uh, far too late to spot the extent of a danger from corona, that it was subject to uh, very serious political pressures uh, from its member states, that it is led by uh, somebody who has neither a particularly strong reputation nor a particularly clean record. Um, and all of us, the failings that uh, we should uh, point out very robustly. Um, so hopefully this is a moment to reform the WHO, uh, even though I believe that defunding it is not uh, the right way of doing that. Um, in the same way, in Europe, uh, we see that uh, the idea that many Europeans have, and perhaps the noble aspiration that many Europeans have, an aspiration that I believed in um, when I was uh, growing up in Germany and other countries, um, that we can have true solidarity at the European level, um, has been slightly um, uh, put in question, uh, or perhaps proven to be untrue uh, in these uh, last weeks and months. It turns out that uh, members of modern nation states are to some willing to uh, see life-saving medical equipment move from one part of a country to another part of a country. Um, I think Americans accept that as cases surge in New York City right now, we should be sending ventilators uh, to New York and when the crisis hopefully subsides there and we might need them in other parts of uh, the United States, whether it's in Ohio, whether it's in Washington, whether it's in Mississippi, uh, then we can move ventilators uh, from here uh, to there. Um, uh, Europeans do not accept that the same should be happening uh, at an international level, that uh, ventilators might be moved from uh, uh, Rome to uh, Berlin, to Paris, to Madrid, um, as uh, the need spikes in different uh, countries. That shows the extent to which cross-national solidarity in Europe just is limited in terms of public opinion. And I'm not quite sure that it's a feeling of the European Union uh, that it hasn't been able to do more about that. I think that's a, that's an underlying constraint of national sentiment and public opinion. Having said that, the EU has been uh, you know, toothless uh, and uh, idealist in this crisis. Uh, it has done virtually nothing uh, to help uh, Italy and then Spain uh, as those countries um, uh, experience the worst onslaught of this disease. Um, and it still faces a deep structural issue with its uh, currency, which is, as has been the case for the last, uh, at this point, 20 years, um, that it has a currency union, an economic union, without having a real political union. Um, and uh, so when a country like Italy uh, faces particular challenges, um, 
its scope of action is limited. Uh, it does not get um, financial uh, assistance from other parts of the Eurozone, but it also can't devalue its currency or do other things that uh, independent nations would usually do um, in order to deal with an economic uh, slump. That is an unsustainable situation, um, and even some of the current speculation about Eurobonds is not going to uh, remedy it. So I think it does show both the limits of the sentiment in Europe that would uh, allow the European Union to uh, grow more powerful and more coherent uh, than it is now, um, and the unsustainability uh, of a strange set of compromises that characterize the EU uh, today. Uh, that makes me very worried about where the EU and where the Eurozone is headed in the next years. Let's turn to questions from our audience right now. You're with the City Club Friday Forum. You can text your questions to 330-541-5794 or tweet them at the City Club and we'll work them into the program. Um, Yasha, uh, one of our listeners asks, uh, writes, I would love to hear Dr. Monk's thoughts on how to conduct oversight of local government as it moves to conduct more business virtually and is therefore potentially less accessible and open to the public. Hmm. That's a very interesting question. I mean, let me say something slightly more general before I get to the specific question, which is um, but I think we were going to face some very difficult trade-offs in the next uh, weeks and months, and there's no easy solution to them. Um, I don't know uh, to, to what extent we should allow the government or, or perhaps private companies uh, to track our movements in order to be able to tell us uh, when we have potentially come into contact with somebody who has uh, COVID-19. Uh, so that we can be quarantined and we can um, take the necessary precautions to um, contain the spread of the pandemic. Um, on the one hand, we could potentially save a lot of lives by doing that. On the other hand, it is um, giving up some rights and uh, some privacy issues uh, that uh, are understandably very, very important to us. I think that's a very difficult trade-off um, to figure out and reasonable people can come down on different uh, parts of that trade-off. I think what is very, very clear is that every action we take should be put under three basic conditions. The first of them is that they have to be democratically uh, legitimated and were appropriate uh, under the control of uh, the judiciary, uh, which is to say that you can have judicial recourse against uh, measures that impact you personally that you believe to be unjust. Um, so uh, uh, we need to make sure that all of these uh, regulations and laws that are passed now um, are actually actively um, voted on by Congress, by state legislatures, uh, by city councils, uh, where that's uh, appropriate. Um, secondly, uh, these measures all have to be temporary. Uh, so that is very clear that you know for the next two or three months, um, the government now has this extraordinary uh, capacity to survey people or to do whatever it is that we agree uh, for the government uh, in order to create the pandemic. But that power automatically lapses at the end of that period. And it's only through active democratic reauthorization that it might be extended for another time period um, if that proves necessary. And the third is that, as they call it in constitutional law, um, all of these measures are narrowly tailored, which is to say that they are strictly necessary in order to actually beat the pandemic. That's why things like uh, throwing people in jail for what they say on social media, as Viktor Orban is doing in Hungary, are utterly unacceptable. That is not required 
in order to save lives and, um, and, and beat this virus. So those are the three conditions on which I think we should all be uh, insisting uh, unequivocally um, with any measures that governments take. And that applies to local governments as well. Now, uh, you are right that there's challenges both of openness uh, and of uh, uh, voice, which is to say it is both difficult to see exactly what the city council, what the mayor is doing when there's no public meetings where you can go and ask questions and uh, see what's going on when you can't go and uh, buttonhole legislators and say, why did you vote for this and so on. Um, and of course, it's harder for people to voice their disapproval of government decisions um, when they can't easily go out to protest, or at least they can't do so without um, serious risk to themselves uh, and others. Um, I think it's a responsibility of local governments to make sure that they um, uh, find forms of transparency that alleviate those concerns, um, that there is a way for citizens to ask questions at virtual city council meetings, um, that uh, mayors and uh, city councillors reach out to the constituents through things like virtual fora, um, you know, that you're showing can, can, can be a really meaningful uh, locus of uh, exchange. Um, so I think uh, there are ways of doing this, but when governments want to abuse this moment in order to shield themselves from public input and public criticism, uh, that makes it very hard for people to protest, and that's one of the dangers of this moment. I don't think there's a perfect solution uh, to that. At the same time, it seems that uh, we might be right to hope that some of these reforms might outlast the pandemic if we are to make local government more accessible and more transparent and uh, more reachable that live streaming of city club or city city council meetings for instance could become a regular thing even for small towns where then constituents could place uh, could provide their feedback virtually as well yeah i mean i think it's worth uh, thinking in general what elements of uh, the sort of more online environment that uh, we currently have uh, might be worth preserving uh, after this extraordinary crisis passes. Um, I think certainly, um, you know, the Supreme Court just streamed its uh, first live online hearing. Um, that, that's unprecedented in the history of, of, of a Supreme Court. I think um, that is a good gain for transparency for the world. Um, and in a similar way, we should be doing the same thing with city council meetings and other things that were not yet accessible online, um, if only out of consideration to some of uh, our fellow citizens. Um, who cannot easily attend those meetings in person, whether it's because of busy lives and other commitments, uh, or perhaps because they are disabled and, and simply cannot physically uh, get to those spaces. Um, uh, now, in general, though, I think that people uh, overestimate uh, our tendency um, to uh, transform our lives a little bit. Um, I have been having debates with friends who say, you know, people are not going to go back to restaurants, they're not going to go back to bars all of our lives uh, are going to uh, become a lot more socially distant in the next years because people will get used to being far away from each other. Um, I think that gets it exactly backwards. I think in many areas of our lives, the moment that it's safe to do so, and not the moment governors or mayors allow bars to open um, if people still think there's a real risk, but the moment that we have a vaccine, the moment that we have an effective treatment, the moment that it's safe to actually re-engage with the public I think there's going to be a great wave of sociability and the restaurants are going to be full and the bars are going to be full and people are going to be having parties and dinner parties and visiting their friends. Um, I do not think that there's going to be a permanent transformation in how we lead our social lives. And I think some of that is true 
of meetings and governments as well. For all of the joys of being able to to reach you, Dan, and speak to this audience, um, you know, from my home right now, there's something wonderful and beautiful about that. Um, I think we all are very uh, nostalgic and sentimental for the time in which we would actually be sitting in a room together and be able to see each other, be able to shake hands or give each other a hug. Um, and I think that's true at the political level as well. Um, I don't think, for example, that uh, in city council are going to become defunct. I don't think that parliaments will say, oh, perhaps people just sit in the districts and transact uh, business from afar. I think, if anything, this moment is proving to us uh, how important physical uh, human uh, co-presence and physical human contact is, uh, even in times in which technology um, uh, allows us miracles like this virtual forum. I think you're, uh, well, I hope you're right about the return to normal. And and I think you are echoing something that I believe Angela Merkel said earlier this week, that these virtual meetings just aren't the same because you can't get up and walk around the table and, and whisper in somebody's ear and say, hey, can we get this, can we get this done? What do you need? Um, here's another question from, uh, from community members. There's some risk that totalitarian government responses that appear to be effective in containing COVID-19 and reopening economies will cause people to be open to more totalitarian measures than relying on measures instituted by liberal democracies. And can higher levels of transparency in liberal democracies actually work against those countries in terms of the perception of how effective they are at responding to the crisis? Higher reported cases and deaths per capita in places reporting honestly, for instance. Your thoughts? Look, I, I think that is a real danger. Um, um, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm a great defender of liberal democracy and I'm a great defender of the rights and liberties that our political system grants us. Um, but I was one of the first people to argue that we should, in fact, um, shut uh, a lot of events and offices and schools down. Um, I was uh, on the side of the people who think we should continue to take radical measures in order to beat this pandemic. And the reason is um, that sacrificing some of our liberty to go out to restaurants and see friends, and these are important liberties at this moment, is going to save the lives of scores and scores of people. And I worry that if democracies fail to do that and autocracies manage to do that, it will tarnish the reputation of democracies for a very long time. When you put people in front of a choice of living in a democracy and see, seeing the grandmother or the grandfather die, or living in a dictatorial regime, they may well choose the dictatorship. Um, uh, so that's why I think it is absolutely essential for democratic leaders um, to uh, 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 to win the fight against this pandemic. And it's, by the way, uh, why um, uh, I very, very much hope that Donald Trump, somebody whom I don't uh, particularly uh, value somebody whom I uh, believe uh, I and other people who care about democracy have reason to mistrust. Um, uh, it's a reason why I very, very much hope that he will finally prove himself equal to this responsibility and to this challenge because um, uh, the lives of so many of our fellow citizens depend on that. Um, now, uh, I also think that democracies can, in fact, succeed in doing that, um, that uh, adopting some uh, quite robust measures in the short run. Um, downloading an app that does uh, track our movement and does allow us to know when we've been in contact with somebody who may have been contaminated by this disease, for example, uh, need not be the beginning of a totalitarian dictatorship. Um, and I think looking back at 9-11, um, uh, there was obviously deep worries about the balance between individual liberty 
and collective security. And I think that we made the wrong call uh, at a number of uh, junctures at that point. I think we did give up uh, some of our individual liberties a little bit too radically in that moment. Um, but I also uh, would like to point out that some of the deepest fears about this just being a bridgehead to a totalitarian security state, which uh, completely undermines our ability to say our opinion, to protest the government, to have free and fair elections, um, proved to be unfounded in the United States, in European countries, uh, in most places around the world. And so in a similar way, I think uh, governments should take robust action to protect the public. That is necessary to preserve the reputation of democracy in the long run. They should be careful to balance those against our individual liberties. But giving our government some of those freedoms, uh, some of those uh, extraordinary rights uh, for a few months is not going to turn the United States and it's not going to turn other democracies around the world um, into totalitarian dictatorships. Some listening to you might be asking, though, what about the president's uh, suggestion earlier this week that he would uh, he would issue an order to adjourn Congress if um, if they don't start a uh, start uh, working on the on the backlog of judges yes look uh, you know donald trump has been uh, incapable or unwilling to understand uh, that a president is not a king for a long time uh, and this is a trait that he shares with other authoritarian populists um, their essential uh, outlook on the world is that they and they alone represent the people and so since they were elected, they should be allowed to do whatever they want. How dare somebody disagree with them? How dare somebody tell them, uh, you're not at liberty uh, to uh, uh, pass this executive order or to pass this law? I'm elected. I'm speaking for the people. Why shouldn't I be free to do whatever I want? That's not how a democratic republic, that's not how what political scientists call a liberal democracy works. We need the rule of law. We need the separation of powers. And we need federalism, which is something that Republicans and conservatives used to care about. Um, and so uh, I am very worried and very concerned about the ways in which Donald Trump has been saying that he has uh, uh, total authority to do whatever he wants. I'm very concerned about the fact that he claims that he can overrule governors and tell them exactly what to do. And we absolutely need to stand up to that. Uh, that's why I always want to distinguish between what governments, uh, what power the government is claiming for itself are strictly necessary in order to battle this pandemic and uh, are uh, under democratic control so that we have recourse to judges when we feel unfairly treated as citizens of this country and which measures are simply taken with the excuse of the coronavirus. And when uh, the President of the United States says that he has total authority or that governors um, do not have a say in the running of their states, uh, those aren't uh, necessary statements in order to beat this pandemic. That's not Donald Trump trying to save the lives of uh, his fellow citizens. Uh, that's him uh, being unwilling to uh, understand that he is a democratically elected president who remains subject to independent institutions and the will of the people rather than uh, a king. When that happens, and it's happened repeatedly over the last month or so, where the president has asserted some perceived right and then found himself facing pushback from governors or the U.S. Constitution or what have you, it 
has seemed to me to be a comment on the strength of democratic institutions and on the on the strength in specifically of democratic institutions in the United States in our specific constitutional republic. Is that how you see it? Yes, I, I would agree with that. I mean, one of the reassuring things is that um, even in a moment of extraordinary danger to the public, uh, most Americans realize that the president does not have total authority. They are aghast when he says that he can simply tell governors what to do. And by the way, the approval ratings of governors at the moment um, uh, on both sides of the aisle um, are much higher uh, on average than the approval rating of president of the United States. So um, I think people will, in fact, uh, stand by the states and by the governors if the federal government uh, attempted to stage some kind of coup. Um, uh, so I think that is reassuring. Um, uh, the United States has a deep democratic tradition and the United States um, has uh, a system of uh, separation of powers, both at the federal level and between the federal level and the states, uh, which helps to protect us. I think about this when it comes to elections in a country like Hungary or in Poland or in uh, Turkey or in many countries around the world, um, there's one central electoral commission. And if the president or prime minister manages to place his or her loyalists into that commission, um, uh, then they you know, get to run the election and can uh, ensure that the opposition loses. In the United States, uh, our elections are often messy. They're often not as uh, fair as they should be. Um, there's voter disenfranchisements and other um, uh, deep injustices. Uh, but elections are run by uh, literally thousands of different bodies across the country, by county heads and uh, town mayors and uh, so on and so forth, um, and trying to uh, systematically undermine uh, the fairness of those elections is a much, much harder task. And so I have much more confidence in the United States than I now do in many other countries around the world that we will still have relatively fair elections in the fall that give the opposition a real chance uh, to displace the government. Having said all of that, we should not be complacent. Um, it is quite striking to what extent independent institutions have come under the sway of the federal government over the last uh, few years. It is astonishing to what extent Donald Trump has managed to turn uh, the Department of Justice, for example, into uh, his uh, plaything. Um, and so I am still concerned about ability to sustain the rule of law for the next four years when we have a president who goes around saying that he has total control and can do whatever he wants. Another question uh, connected to what we've been discussing here is the federal structure of, the, of our government a cause of the mismanagement of the crisis? Uh, no, I think it's a federal government that's uh, the cause of a mismanagement uh, of a crisis. I, I do think there are some problems uh, that the federal system uh, can create. Um, you, you know, infamously over the last weeks, we had different states and the federal government bidding against each other uh, when they were trying to uh, purchase uh, urgently needed uh, medical goods, whether it's personal protective equipment or ventilators, uh, from manufacturers. That is absurd that you have the state of Ohio bidding against the state of Massachusetts and then the federal government comes in and then California bids a little bit higher and then the government bids again. That is absurd. Um, but the government has the tools to coordinate action uh, on that front. The problem is that the federal government has not, not been um, uh, exercising uh, those tools. Um, and more broadly, um, you know, uh, the federal government is far too slow 
in getting on board with trying to implement social distancing measures. Now at a moment when it's still unfortunately not safe to do so, and when vast majorities of Americans approve of measures at social distancing, the federal government is trying to uh, tell people just go back to normal. Uh, now, thankfully, uh, we've had governors uh, from both political parties uh, who have stood up to that and who much earlier than the federal government have started to close down the states who are now banding together in these regional blocks to say, we will have a more rational, a less partisan system for figuring out when we can safely uh, open up our economy again. And more importantly, what we have to do right now in order to get to the point where we can, in fact, open up the economy. So I think at a moment in which the federal government has deeply, deeply failed, uh, federalism for, for, for all of its disadvantages, which are real, uh, has helped to save the United States. Yasha Monk is our guest. He is a fellow with the German Marshall Fund of the United States, an editor with The Atlantic Magazine, and uh, the host of a podcast called The Good Fight, which is focused on the on liberal democracies and how they make their way in the world. Yasha, a few questions have come in that have to do with this tension between individual rights and the public interest or the, or the interests of public health, specifically um, about the uh, perception that there has been some religious oppression during the pandemic, or that it's um, or the perception that uh, that people's rights are being trampled on, uh, whether those are in uh, states that are led by Republicans in uh, as here in Ohio or or to the north in Michigan, led by a Democratic governor. Um, both our governor here in Ohio and 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 Governor Whitmer in, in Michigan have faced massive protests, relatively massive protests for a time in which we should be social distancing. I wonder if you could comment a little bit on the um, on that tension between um, individual rights, individual liberties, and public health. Yeah, um, well, look, uh, oh, we seem first to, of all, the government, of course, we have seen should allow people to, to congregate. And, oh, here. We've oh, got, I'm sorry, can you... Yeah, great. Um, so first of all, of course, uh, you know, we, we want to live in societies in which we can go um, and see our families, in which we can go and hang out with friends, in which we can go and have barbecues, in which we can go to Starbucks and pick up a coffee whenever we feel like it, in which we can go out drinking and go to restaurants and, of course, go to uh, religious services, which are so important. And, or you can tweet it at the City Club. We'll try to work it in. Yasha Monk, do we have you back? I can hear you. I hope you can hear me as well. Okay. Yes, we've got you now. Go ahead. Great. All right. Sorry about that. Um, so what I was saying is that, you know, obviously, first of all, we want to live in a society in which we can uh, go out and uh, enjoy our lives, in which we can go and visit friends and relatives, in which we can... Um, uh, go out to Starbucks for coffee in which we can have barbecues uh, and, of course, in which we can uh, observe uh, religious services, which are so uh, so important to many of us. Um, what is making that impossible in a safe way at the moment is not this or that governor. It is a deadly virus which is threatening to kill millions of our fellow citizens and to overwhelm our public health system unless we take those uh, measures at social distancing. So I think often people uh, who are protesting these measures are shooting the messenger. Uh, the problem is not the governor, the problem is the virus. And we need to uh, make sure uh, that we put in place the measures we need in order to contain uh, the virus. Now, um, I think there's a second question here about the specific role of religious services. 
uh, our constitution gives uh, deep uh, protections to religious uh, communities. And if religious communities were in any way being uh, targeted specifically, if we were having big football games um, uh, with audience being played, uh, and in the meanwhile, uh, governors are saying, if you go to a church or if you go to a synagogue or if you go to a mosque, uh, that is illegal. Uh, that would be a very, very worrying breach uh, of our religious liberties. Uh, but when we have, for compelling reasons and temporary reasons of public safety, measures in place in general to limit the assembly of more than a few people, um, then that is not targeting religion. Uh, that is simply a concession to the reality of a very dangerous uh, moment we live in. Yasha Monk, I want to ask you as we get close to the end, a question that's been, um, that is on the minds of, of many. The, these moments in this this these last five six weeks um or if you want to extend it back to january when this all began have been moments that have frightened many people and yet as our communities and our states and our economy have all paused there have been um there's been revealed a, a sort of a different way of living and i wonder if there's anything from all of this that you are hoping we as a community, as a society, as a nation, hang on to? Well, there's a few things on the personal level and a few things on the political level. Um, on the personal level, um, you know, I found that uh, in a moment in which physical distance uh, does not matter, in which I am as separated from my friend who lives three blocks down from me as I am from, uh, you know, friends I went to college with in the United Kingdom, um, I'm suddenly finding myself um, speaking to and socializing uh, with friends in a, in a renewed way and family in a renewed way. Um, you know, a lot of people have now have weekly uh, Zoom calls for their extended families. Um, I think some of those things are beautiful and wonderful. I feel more connected now to some of my distant family members and more connected now to many of my college friends than I did a week or two ago. And, and hopefully we will preserve that uh, once we are able to uh, socialize with our friends who are down the block again uh, as well. Um, I think politically, we see to what extent our collective well-being depends on the well-being of the poorest and least privileged members of our community. Uh, in public health, um, you know, if somebody is spreading this disease um, because they're uninsured and they're incapable of getting treatment or testing, um, it affects me as much as when a much more affluent person um, uh, gets sick. And so I hope that this uh, prompts us to ensure that we don't have uninsured people in our community, but everybody has quality access uh, to medical care. Um, having said that, I also think it's easy to uh, romanticize uh, a very difficult moment. It's easy to say, oh, perhaps it's revealing to us all of the things uh, that were terrible in the world. And there's certainly many bad injustices that are put in relief at this moment. I think it's also revealing to us how wonderful much of our life is and was. Um, uh, you know, how wonderful it is to be able uh, to go out to uh, restaurants, to go out to bars, to go out to coffee shops. How wonderful it is to be able to have my uh, neighbors over uh, for coffee or for dinner. Um, and so I hope that in many respects, we're going to go right back to what our lives were like because uh, many of us uh, have a luck of having fulfilled lives with many friends and acquaintances and neighbors um, with whom we visit and with whom we spend time um, uh, and, and above hope and belief uh, that those times will come back. 
Well, Yasha Monk, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. And, um, and you know, I think in spite of the uh, challenges to democracies, you've given us uh, quite a lot of reason to hope. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much and sorry for the bad connection. Oh, no, that's okay. It's been all right. It's been uh, the best we could hope for, really. <laughs> Dr. Ja Yasha Monk is Associate Professor at Johns Hopkins University and presented virtually today thanks to our partners at IdeaStream. Our virtual forums are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gunn Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, and PNC, with additional support from Bank of America, the Center for Community Solutions, St. Luke's Foundation, and Thompson Hine, along with many generous members, sponsors, and donors you can find at our website, cityclub.org slash thank you. If you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution at cityclub.org slash donate. We'd also like to thank the Cleveland Council on World Affairs for their partnership as a community partner on today's forum. And we're going to continue to present these forums throughout this time, either virtually and here from the IdeaStream studio next Friday. Please join us as Long Ung will join us to share her personal story of war and tragedy under the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia and how the lessons she learned can guide us today during this dark time. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong. Stay healthy, stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. We'll see you soon. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.